So far in civil procedure, we've talked about the, dis uh, the pleading period, the discovery period, and we've talked about how to resolve issues without going to trial. And that is a perfect transition into actually talking about the trial proceedings and how that's all going to work. But the very first thing that we want to talk about with the trial proceedings is the jury. So everybody has a right to trial by jury. There's a constitutional right. I believe it's uh, Amendment 6, maybe Amendment 7 of the Constitution. But it is important to note that parties can waive the right to a jury. So to have a jury trial, and parties actually need to state it in their pleadings, they need to ask for a jury very early on. And if they don't ask for the jury, well, then they're going to have, cons uh, it'll be considered waived as far as their right to the jury. So if either party wants it, all they have to do is ask. And if only one party wants it, unless there's a really good reason not to, that is all that is going to matter. A jury is going to be offered if one party wants it. So a jury selection then is outlined in 28 U.S.C. sections 1861 and 1862. So in federal courts, the jury is going to be selected within the district, and those jurors are going to be selected from cross-sections within divisions, which are just smaller sections within uh, the district. You can kind of just picture that as uh, if a state has counties, uh, then a district has divisions, and that's kind of how that's going to work. And the whole point of that is just to minimize travel because districts can be quite large, and you want to reduce the burden that could potentially be on jurors. So that's all in 28 U.S.C. section 1861. 1862 talks about how it works for state courts. Um, sorry. No, it doesn't. Uh, state courts, this isn't in 28 U.S.C., but state courts, the jury is going to be selected uh, from the county and that the juror actually resides in. Now, 1862 is going to be ta talking about jurors' rights. Jurors can't be excluded because of their race, color, religion, sex, national origin, or economic status. But jurors can still be selected uh, to remove, to be removed, and the whole point of this is to remove bias. Uh, so the process for removal is in Rule 47, and it has two parts. And this is also outlined in 28 U.S.C. Section 1870, but there's a void dire. I don't know if I said that right, but that's the process where you question the jury pool, and the whole point of that is to identify bias. You want to remove racism, you want to remove sexism, you want to remove any economic status. So, for example, uh, we'll do an economic status one just to stay away from the sensitive topics of uh, racism and sexism. But economic status, uh, say a person this is an insurance company. An insurance company is uh, being sued, and you get to the jury selection, and you're looking at the pool, and you're questioning, and you ask them, have you ever had an insurance claim? Well, you have insurance, right? Have you ever had an insurance claim against them? Was your insurance claim ever denied by the insurance company? And if the answer is yes, well, then that's going to be bias, and you want to remove that juror, because they're not going to look favorably, favorably at an insurance company because they had a previously denied insurance claim. That'll be an example of an economic status. The second way 
uh, that jury selection works is preemptory challenges. So each attorney is limited to three of these challenges, and they're challenges where you can remove the juror without any reason at all. Except, of course, your reasons can't be based off of the race, color, religion, sex, national origin, or economic status. Can't be based off of those. And that's all called, uh, if that is the case, if you're suspected of that, you're going to have a Batson hearing against you uh, to say, hey, did you use one of your preemptory challenges uh, to discriminate against a juror because of their uh, race, color, religion, sex, etc.? But uh, there are times when um, attorneys don't uh, really get a good vibe from a juror, and as a result, they just want to exercise one of their preemptory challenges. And that would be a completely valid way of doing it as long as you're not doing it for a, a very bad reason. And the whole reason for the jury selection process is so that we have an impartial jury. And that is 28 U.S.C. 1866, subsection C. So finally, as far as the jury process goes, there is one other thing that I want to talk about before getting into all the trial-related stuff, is a defendant can offer judgment. And so the plaintiff sues uh, the defendant. It gets all the way there. Summary judgment doesn't work. This is all going to trial. The defendant can say, hey, I think I'm going to lose pretty much. And I will accept judgment if you accept this payment. So it sounds kind of like a settlement, right? And the rule is outlined in Rule 60, 68. It says, at least 14 days before the date set for trial, a party defendant against a claim may serve on an opposing party and offer to allow judgment on the specified terms with the cost that accrued. If within 14 days after being served, the opposing party serves written notice accepting the offer, either party may then file the offer notice of acceptance plus proof of service. Ultimately, defendant comes to the plaintiff, says, hey, I, I, I'm offering judgment. I will be, have judgment against me. Accept this payment. But the catch of this is that if the offer is not accepted, the plaintiff says, nope, I think I can get a lot more. But then the plaintiff gets a judgment and wins less than the offer. Well, then they're going to be subject to the cost of the court from the in-between time. And so offer was given. And then plaintiff says, nope. Any time between that nope until the actual jury process goes and trial occurs, any time in between that time, the plaintiff is going to be subject to all of those costs, whereas otherwise it would have been costs against the defendant. So let's walk through a quick example just to see how an offer judgment works. Defendant comes up to the plaintiff, says, hey, for $300,000, I will accept judgment on this. The plaintiff is going to refuse. Later, the plaintiff only wins $200,000. The plaintiff is going to get their $200,000, but they're required to pay the costs in between when the offer was made and the judgment was given. And the whole point of this, we want to encourage settlement and we don't want the court to have resources allocated against them. That's really all why that works. And that is our introduction to the trial section of civil procedure. Uh, I won't get into this 
just yet, but next episode we're going to talk about judgment as a matter of law and judgment notwithstanding the verdict. Have a good one. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Law Schoolers. Before I let you go, there are four things I want to say. The first thing is if you enjoyed these episodes and if you enjoyed the website, I would invite you to go and join Law Schoolers Pro. And you can do that by going to lawschoolers.com slash join. It's a way for you to support us, but there's also a lot of features there that I think you will enjoy. Second thing is that nearly all of our episodes are unedited. The only ones that aren't are pre-law materials. And the reason for that is so you can actually see the legal material in its raw form as I'm learning it as well. The third thing is that the information contained in these episodes are specifically only for educational purposes. They're not to be used as legal advice. And with that, the fourth thing is if it is used as legal advice, we are not liable. That is, law schoolers is not liable for any legal outcomes. Thank you again for enjoying the show. Have a good one.